Welcome to The Deeper You Go, The Winner Gets. I'm your host, Garrett Reining. So this episode is the recap of Ceremony 14, which occurred on Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Now, this episode was not recorded in the jungle like the other recaps. I wrote these thoughts down in my journal shortly after the ceremony, but never got around to recording it while I was down there. What's interesting about this recap is I talk a lot about being in the jungle versus doing the diet socially. But if you listen to my six-month recap, I have seemed to found, have found some resolution to this dilemma that has been plaguing my mind for, well, the last six months. But anyway, these are my, here are my unedited thoughts after Ceremony 14. But before we get into that, I encourage you all to reach out with any questions you may have about my journey or anything I have discussed. And if you would like to support the show and also support my year-long journey, one of the easiest ways is to get you some podcast gear. I have stickers, hats, mugs, t-shirts, and hoodies. The link for the gear is in the show notes. I also have fermented herbal tonics and pine pollen tinctures available, so please email me for more details. And the pine pollen tinctures have been flying off the shelves and for good reason. Testosterone in both men and women is at an all-time low thanks to pesticides, microplastics, tap water, a sedentary lifestyle, and even wacky modern ideology. And the result is that most people are overweight, unfocused, depressed, have minimal muscle mass, and almost zero sex drive. Not to mention, the low testosterone is a major factor in why the masculine and feminine energies in our society are so out of whack and lacking harmony. So if you want to save yourself, save your relationship, and possibly even save the world, get you some pine pollen. And my pine pollen is made with the best ingredients possible. Raw, uncracked pine pollen harvested in the pristine Canadian wilderness and organic cane alcohol. It doesn't get any cleaner than that. So if you're interested in purchasing that, send me a message. My email is in the show notes. Also, I wrote a book. It's called The Self-Sabotage Guide, Nine Behaviors Preventing You from Becoming Stronger, Faster, and Sexier. I wrote it about eight years ago, kind of forgot about it, but it's a fitness book about overcoming resistance or your excuses. It's a short read, about 20 pages, and and if you're interested, the link is in the show notes. And lastly, at the very least, if you enjoy this podcast, the most one of the most important things you can do is sharing it, liking it, subscribing it, and leaving a review, specifically if you were listening to this on the Apple Podcast app. I know based on what data I can receive about my podcast that most people listen to this on the Apple Podcast app. So please take a few seconds and leave me a five-star review or leave me whatever review. Maybe I don't deserve five stars, but just leave me a review. Um, But anyway, so that's all the announcements. So let's get into the episode. And remember, I am reading my journal entry about about ceremony 14. So here goes. So in the last ceremony recap, at the very end, I mentioned I was questioning my decision of how much time I'm spending in the jungle and wondering if I should have planned to do the entire year in the jungle as opposed to going back and forth. 
And well, on Tuesday night ceremony, that came up again, or at least the question of how much should one try to control their destiny? In other words, should you just should you just let go and surrender to the universe, just believing and hoping that things will work out for the best? Or should you try to plan and direct your life so that you can get the best so that you can get the results you want? Well, in order to get in, into this, I should first discuss my goals for this year. I have two main goals. The first one is to learn Shipibo-style plant medicine, right? It's to connect with plant spirits, to connect with nature, and to learn how to conduct plant medicine ceremonies so that I can help others become the best version of themselves. These things are priority number one and the reason I have chosen such an extreme method of training. The second goal is to set my life up for success. I'm basically taking a year off so I can focus on the intense training of plant medicine, but this also gives me a great opportunity to focus on myself and make the right moves so that at the end of the year I can hit the ground running and live the lifestyle I want. See, I have spent the last three years digging myself out of a hole, and I am now ready to move forward and build a life that I can be proud of. Now, with these goals in mind, the question then becomes how important is the jungle? Should I be spending more time down here? Well, let's start with goal number one, learning Shipibo-style plant medicine. Now, with this goal, it would seem obvious that the jungle is very important, right? I mean, who better to learn Shipibo-style medicine from than the Shipibo themselves in their natural environment? And it's true, which is why I'm down here. It is important to go to the source. With that being said, is it necessary to spend an entire year or is it possible to learn or is it possible to learn just as much from other non-Shipibo practitioners who are also trained in Shipibo-style medicine? Now, in order to answer that question, you must know that according to the Shipibo, the true teachers of the medicine are the plants themselves. That's right, not, not a human, but the plants. Even Ricardo says this. See, Ricardo's specialty is his ability to connect you with plant energies and manage the energies associated with them. He has this ability not because he is some divine figure, but because he has spent many years learning from the plants. And many people who have trained with Ricardo call him their teacher or maestro. But the truth is, Ricardo is not a great teacher, at least not in the way I think of a teacher. Now, to be honest, if I spent more time down here, maybe my opinion would change. Now, that is not to say that you cannot learn a lot from him because you can. Ricardo is a wealth of knowledge, but a lot of what you learn is through osmosis. The more time you spend around him, the more you learn about how he manages energies and the energetic qualities of the plants he works with. And trust me, you can learn a lot this way. But there is definitely no systematic training protocol and since the plants are the true teachers maybe that is not necessary maybe his hands-off approach is the perfect method maybe maybe not but what this makes me think of is it kind of relates to the history of brazilian jiu-jitsu see brazilian jiu-jitsu is interesting because as far as martial arts goes 
It is brand new. In fact, it was relatively unknown in the U.S. and even most of the world until the early 1990s. And now, it might be the most popular martial art in the U.S. and quite possibly even the world. Okay, so here's a very generalized, non-researched, because I'm in the jungle, history of BJJ, also known as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So Jiu-Jitsu started in Japan and has been established for a long period of time. And so one thing about Japanese martial arts is they are very rigid, meaning you don't question your sensei. A technique is done a certain way regardless of its effectiveness because that's how it has been done for hundreds, if not thousands of years. No questions, no changes, just follow the directions. Because of this, there hasn't been a lot of innovation in Japanese martial arts in basically forever. Everything is taught the way it has always been taught because that's the culture. Well, around the 1950s or so, due to some Japanese people immigrating, jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu arrived in Brazil where it was discovered by the Gracie family. Now, Brazilians, in some ways, culturally, are, are the complete opposite of the Japanese. The Japanese, like I said, are very rigid and structured, and the Brazilians are very loose and laid back. And when the Gracie family was learning Japanese jiu-jitsu, they didn't care about the history or structure. They just cared if it was effective in a real street fight. See, in the hands of the Gracies and other Brazilians... BJJ was born. And these Brazilians, they took the foundations of Japanese jiu-jitsu throughout the rigidness and focused strictly on what would work in a real life-or-death fight. They basically applied the Bruce Lee philosophy of use what is useful, discard what isn't, and make it uniquely your own. And with this approach, the Brazilians created the most effective martial art the world has ever known. And then around 1990, during the first ever UFC event, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was brought to the world stage. Hoist Gracie, the son of Elio Gracie, who essentially created BJJ, dominated the first few UFC events using Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a fighting style that no one had ever really seen before. And because, it's, and because of its effectiveness, many people immediately became interested in learning and became interested in learning this new art. And at the time there was almost there was almost nowhere to learn this aside from going to Brazil or learning from the Gracie family members, some who eventually moved to California. The idea back then was that if you wanted to learn BJJ, you had to learn it from a Brazilian. And rightfully so, as they were the only ones who knew the art. And As time went on, eventually other Brazilians started learning the art. And what's interesting is that once it took hold in the U.S., it really started to flourish because the U.S. mindset, at least as far as the art goes, seems to be right in the middle between the Brazilian and Japanese mindset. See, the Japanese were too structured, which didn't allow for innovation. And the Brazilians were too loose, which allowed for lots of innovation, but they, the Brazilians, were really bad teachers because they had very little structure. 
And once it got into the U.S., both worlds were combined. The innovation aspect was allowed to stay, but people started to systemize, organize, and simplify the training, all while keeping an open mind to new techniques and new aspects of the art. And what's really crazy is that in just 30 years of BJJ being in the U.S., the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes and coaches in the world are now non-Brazilians. And if you want to learn BJJ, the best place in the world is in the U.S. And it has grown so fast that you can now get extremely high levels of training in just about any city in the United States. And it's no longer necessary to travel to Brazil or learn it from a Brazilian. In fact, now you can actually learn high-level BJJ just about anywhere in the world because of its popularity and influence. And what this proves is that martial arts have no allegiance to a particular race or culture. All that is necessary to learn is love, respect, and appreciation of the art, and of course a willingness to learn. So the question now becomes, is the same possible for plant medicines, particularly ayahuasca? Is it possible to stand on the shoulder of giants, honoring and respecting its origins, but at the same time making it uniquely your own? Or at the very least, is it possible to learn the high-level skills necessary to connect to plant spirits while simultaneously learning how to manage energies correctly and safely outside of its original environment? Well, I guess that's what I'm trying to determine. And only time will tell. See you on the other side. Thank you.